We are currently in the midst of an eight-week sermon series that's focusing on the letter that St. Paul wrote to the Philippians. Um, these are the believers in the Greek city of Philippi, and the letter was written while Paul was imprisoned under the um, authority of the Roman Empire. And what we saw the last couple of weeks is that there is this special relationship between this church of Philippi and Paul, that um, Paul, excuse me, Paul was one, or Philippi was one of the first churches that Paul planted in his missionary journey to Europe, um, and the church continued to support Paul financially as he was going across the Roman Empire teaching people about Jesus. So let me pull that off. Um, teaching people about Jesus. And, um, you know, the Philippian church heard that Paul had been arrested, and so they send a financial gift to Paul to say, here, you know, maybe this can provide some assistance during this harrowing time. And in, in large part, this letter of Philippians that we have is Paul's response to them. And so, following his introduction, last week we saw Paul describe his circumstances. He gave them an update on what was going on with his imprisonment and how it is serving to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was in this section that we saw that famous passage, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But at this point in the letter, Paul moves from talking about himself to beginning to address the Philippians. So if you want to pull out your Bibles or if you still got them out, we're going to be uh, finishing the very end of Philippians chapter 1, moving into the start of chapter 2. And we can walk through that text together. And we'll start at verse 27. Um, now, in the Greek, something that I think gets lost in the English translation is that it literally reads, probably about halfway through that passage, that being absent, I might hear the things about you. Right? So Paul is really trying to uh, understand what's going on uh, in their lives and share how they ought to be living. And so what follows is a number of commands. The grammatical term that we're going to look at again in a minute are imperatives. Uh, they're, they're opportunities for Paul to encourage them in their pursuit of Jesus. So if you would follow along with me as I read, this is Philippians 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God." For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord of one, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as I said a moment earlier, verse 27, Paul is turning his attention to the faith and the life of the Philippians, and he begins this section with an imperative. So imperative is a tense, uh, a verb tense that signals a command. Just to give you an example of this, uh, years ago when Elizabeth was very young, we participated in a, a type of therapy called PCIT, Parent-Child Interact- Interaction Therapy. And the desired outcome of this process was to, it, it, it is great, I've encouraged lots of folks to, to look into it, because the, the goal of it is to deepen the bond between the parent and the child. And through that deeper bond and, and clear expectations provide greater uh, and gain greater compliance. And one of the tools in the toolbox of this approach is to give commands instead of asking questions, right? So when, you know, Elizabeth was very young and we would want her to put on her shoes, we might say, can you put on your shoes? But by asking it as a question, it provided the opportunity for Elizabeth to say, no, I don't want to put on my shoes. Instead, we were instructed to give a command if that's what we were looking for. Please, and it could be polite, the command doesn't have to be like, tight-fisted, but please put on your shoes. That's an example of an imperative. Paul's not saying like, hey, you know, do me a favor and, and live this way. He's saying, no, this is how you ought to live. And so the imperative that Paul's uses, again, I think it gets lost in the ESV. It says, let your life be worthy. I think a better translation is in line with the NIV, which is conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Paul, Paul's not asking them, you know, hey, you know, do this for me, but is compelling them to live rightly, to live in a specific way. And all right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some Greek again. I said I wasn't going to last week and did anyway, but here, the Greek word for this, this conduct yourselves, this is fascinating. Going back, we were talking about some politics in the scriptures, right? The scriptures are highly political, but often not in the ways that we try to make it be. The, the Greek word here for conduct yourselves, I'm going to mispronounce it, politeuste. It's one word, but there's like lots of vowels right in a row. Politeuste. Now notice that first sound, polit. It's where we get our word for politics. What Paul is saying, and what this word really means, is he's telling the Philippians to conduct yourselves, live the life of a citizen. That's what the word means. But the immediate question that raises for me is a citizen of where? So let's take a quick step back and look at that full paragraph of 27 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. Paul is encouraging the believers to have unity in the face of something that might cause them fear. He doesn't explicitly state what that is, but he's saying, hey, you don't have to be afraid of it. So intuitively, there's something there that might cause them to fear. Paul's saying, don't be afraid because God's got you. Now, verse 29 and 30 bring a little clarity what this people, what the people might fear. Paul says that they will suffer for the sake of Christ with this same type of conflict that Paul has just described of himself, what we looked at last week. 
Paul is saying persecution is bound to come, and when it does, to cope with that persecution in a way that is befitting of a citizen. So given this context, I would suggest, I think that Paul is encouraging them to be citizens of the gospel. They are to cope with persecution in a way that is fitting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, they are to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, and secondarily, as a citizen of Philippi. And this is the revealed in the way that they suffer. Right? They suffer not fearful of what Rome can do to them, but confident in the higher kingdom that they belong to. And so this is a sign to their opponents, but also to them, that God is at work in them. And that's a theme that we're going to pick up in the next section um, of chapter 2 that we'll look at next week. Paul is telling the Philippians that their suffering is part of this same struggle to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God that Paul is currently going through. So conduct yourselves as a citizen, uh, a, a, wor- a citizen worthy of that calling. And so on the heels of this, Paul's talking about his suffering, he moves to talking about their suffering, and then he makes this transition in his letter, the start of chapter 2. The last four verses in chapter 1, he's describing the suffering that believers should be alerted to, should be prepared to from the outside. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he transitions to encouraging them to remain unified internally. He moves from, you're going to have to be steadfast to oppressive forces from the outside to don't succumb to disunity on the inside. Put another way, I think what Paul is saying is internal unity is necessary for holding back the destructive forces that hinder the gospel's advancement on the outside. Now, I've said this a number of times in the last few weeks, that the theme, I would say, suggest for this letter is the joy of service to God and one another. And there's a lot of times where joy is not the same thing of like, I'm really excited to be in the circumstance I'm in. It's not necessarily what joy means. And so, as we consider this attitude of service and what it means to be joyful in service, there's a number of characteristics that, you know, they're not directly synonymous with service, but are elements of what it means to carry that attitude. Things like humility, thinking about the needs of others above our own, and unity. And the way that I'm going to define unity is a group of people together facing the same direction for the same purposes, right? There's collaboration. I, I often, I, I mean, my mind is just wired in the scientific realm, and so I apologize for those of you who are not scientific because I just always find myself going there, but this, this kind of matches with the concept of resonance. Resonance is when you have vibrations that are matching to each other, and they kind of increase the effectiveness, the amplitude of the, the vibrations on that object. And so unity is a group of people not working against each other, but they're striving together. Their efforts are multiplied because they're in the same direction on behalf of a cause. They're stronger because of that partnership. And so in this next section, there's this, this is the characteristic of community that Paul focuses on, unity. Verse 1 begins with the translation, if. Again, a better translation would be since. Paul's not talking about the hypothetical, but the concrete. They have been encouraged 
by Christ. They have received God's love. They have participated in the work of the Holy Spirit. In light of all that, they ought to have that same love of service, same love and service towards one another. Verse 2 could be translated literally as, think the same thing, having the same love, united in soul, thinking the one thing. This describes unity, not necessarily uniformity. Thinking one thing does not mean that you have to have groupthink, a structure that puts on blinders that discourages creativity. One commentator put it this way, and I love this metaphor, but thinking one thing, it's kind of like being soulmates. Now, I should should take a a moment, brief moment, and say that I don't necessarily believe in soulmates the way that our culture does, you know, likes to sentimentalize them, that as if there's only one person and only one that is like the right fit for us romantically. Um, I mean, what happens if like I I married, you know, if Sarah's not my soulmate, not only have I married the wrong person, but I've stolen someone else's soulmate, you know, it it doesn't make sense even quantitatively. But, but I'm using soulmate to describe the, the affection of unity and of thought that is found in relationships when you've formed your lives around one another. And, you know, I, I was really trying to rack my brain for this because there, there was like a great instance, an gr- uh, example that happened with Sarah and I the other, uh, a few weeks ago, because um, we had this moment that just highlighted like how much we've influenced each other. And I, couldn't, I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was like one of the kids said something. I'm pretty sure we were in our living room. And one of the kids something said something to us, and both Sarah and I in unison began replying with like the exact same phrase. And like we didn't even finish the thra- phrase because once we heard each other saying the same thing, we both stopped saying it to let the other one finish, but we both stopped at like precisely the same time. And then there was this pause, and it was the same length of pause, and then we both launched in simultaneously saying a second follow-up, like a second phrase simultaneously that we both cut off when we realized it was like one of these, you know, like, you want to do this? You know, it's like Sarah and I could not have tried to manufacture that uh, if we, if we did, you know, if we wanted to. But it was one of those moments where it was like, oh my gosh, we like think the same thing at the same time. Um, That to me was an example of that affection, uh, that unity of affection for me. What does it mean for us as a church to kind of have that. We've, we've grown our lives together that we're f- there's familiarity and alignment uh, in that. And so when we commit ourselves to each other, affection follows. We begin to promote the interests of others above ourselves. And th- this is what Paul says is the source of unity. In verse 3, he makes this more specific by telling them to not act out, not act out of selfish ambition. And this is an interesting word choice because the word that Paul uses here, I'm not going to tell you the Greek, but but it was previously used. It's not used in Scripture a lot, but it was previously used in Aristotle's work. He was a philosopher, Greek philosopher, in his work Politica. And the word was used to describe someone who is greedily trying to grasp public office through unjust means. That's interesting. Once again, we see these political undertones in the section. This is the second, like, political word that we have found in the section. Now, when we think about someone who is, who is reaching for selfish ambition in this political perspective, the first image that came to my mind, uh, if you've watched the show, you know, House of Cards, Francis Underwood, who, you know, seeks, desires to have that office of president, and 
uh, he doesn't care who he hurts in the process of it. I mean, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction that, you know, we, we have plenty of real-life examples of this in Washington to highlight these selfish tactics. Now, for the church, it means that we should not try to get the upper hand through underhand tactics. We should not use our powers to try to manipulate others to get what we want and diminish the needs of others. Now, I think in this space, Paul has kind of thrown down the gauntlet here because it's often very natural for humans to act that way. I mean, it's easy for us to think about a specific experience and find ways that we can get others to acquiesce to what we want, to those desires, especially when we have that soulmate-like relationship with others. We know precisely what to say, when to say it, how to say it in order to get what we want. And Paul says, uh-uh, that's not how you should live your lives. Stop being like slimy politicians with each other. But Paul doesn't just issue the challenge and walk away. He provides an example. And what better example for the humility that is honoring to God than the humility displayed by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ? And so verse 5 moves to this, this introductory sentence where Paul wants to put flesh on the skeleton of humility and selflessness that he's been sharing with the Philippians. Verses 6 through 11 are a beautiful depiction of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And scholars are, uh, they're split, they're undecided, um, they debate on whether this was original to Paul, that Paul wrote these words um, out of his own mind, or if he was borrowing. A lot of scholars think that perhaps he was borrowing from an early Christian hymn, you know, like we sing, what a powerful name. It would be like you're writing a letter to a friend and you put this very familiar stanza of a worship song that, you know, they play on Caleb all the time. Uh, it, it, we don't necessarily know which it was, but it introduces this some very, very deep theological truths about the nature of Jesus Christ. And you could spend a sermon in and of itself just kind of parsing out all of the different language of who Jesus is and his identity, and I don't want to get too bogged down by those intricate details. Um, I, I want us to focus more on what does this mean for the Philippians and for us as well. And so just to kind of summarize it, these verses tell us that Jesus has divine status. Right? He was in the form, the very nature of God. But in an unexpected turn of events, Jesus Christ did not use his status or equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't use that divine status to his own advantage, but instead he shared a willingness to empty himself. Again, you can talk about what does empty himself mean? Did he give up the divine characteristics or not? Again, we don't need to go into that, but you can see there's lots of words here that we could explore. But he shared a willingness to empty himself and become human, experiencing death, in particular an unfair death, an unjust death in, under very cruel circumstances, the worst form of torture that existed in the ancient world. What this passage shows us is that the expression of Christ's deity is revealed in his selfless love of others. Jesus went from the highest point possible. He is God. He is residing in the heavenly realms. He is living it up in comfort and safety. He was willing to empty himself and come to the lowest 
area possible. The Bible describes him as a slave. I know our translations say servant. I looked at that two weeks ago, but the word was doulos. Now, he was not a literal slave, but it meant that he was at the lowest point of social status. And in this expression of humility, Jesus Christ died in such a disparaging way. If you read Paul in other places in the New Testament, he reminds his readers just how much of a stumbling block the cri- that the cross was to the broader culture. We take it for granted, right? We wear it as chains around our necks. We get it tattooed on our bodies. But the cross was offensive. Like, what do you mean your God died a death that was reserved for the lowest tier of society, a death that was reserved as punishment for criminals or usurpers of the Roman Empire? Jesus in his love and mercy, identifies with the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. Now, Paul finishes the section by describing Jesus' exaltation, right? The cross was not the last word, uh, but that Jesus Christ defeated death, that now reigns in heaven all, every knee will bow before him, some gladly, some begrudgingly, but it's going to happen. Now, when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, he's not suggesting that they should imitate every characteristic of Christ's journey. Surely, not all of them would be crucified or killed for their faith. Surely, they were not going to be worshipped in heaven. But he was encouraging the Philippians to imitate the attitude of Jesus. The way Jesus displayed what it meant to put the needs of others above themselves. Now, here's how I want us to be thinking about it, or I would encourage us to think about it in our lives, in our present context. I I, I said earlier, Jesus did not use his status as something to be exploited for his own gain. Now, another word that I think we could substitute here for status is the word privilege. Jesus had significant privilege, but he he didn't hoard it. He didn't use it only for himself, but saw that it was for the unselfish giving to others. Now, I, I say that word, privilege, and sometimes I feel like, man, I'm, I'm asking for trouble putting myself in hot water because in recent years, it has been, become a very loaded term in our culture wars. But I've, I've been saying this from the beginning when, when privilege kind of started to get uh, you know, brought into the culture wars that I, I don't think it should be. I'm indebted to the writings of Andy Crouch. He's one of my favorite authors in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. One chapter is devoted to the concept of privilege. And he, he wrote this book before, um, you know, people were talking about white privilege. Um, he wrote this before those culture wars around it. But he defines privilege this way, and I think this is very eye-opening. He says, quote, privilege is the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. Let me say that again for you. Privilege is the ongoing benefits that you receive because of past successful exercises of power. He says that privilege is a neutral term. Privilege doesn't take into account whether those benefits were obtained through healthy or positive means or nefarious ones. It doesn't take into account, privilege does not take into account whether I worked hard to earn that privilege 
or whether it was gifted to me by my family or societal structure. Privilege is a tool. It can be used to harm, or it can be used to heal. All of us have different degrees of privilege, of the benefits of past successful. Again, it's not, it's not good necessarily, because some of the privilege that we have in our society is not founded on good things, but, but past successful exercises of power. But how do we usually pursue or use that privilege? More often than not, we seek to get ahead by pursuing the highest paying jobs or trying to be part of the most popular social circles at our school or at our workplace, by taking the most extravagant vacations or seeking to gain admission to the most prestigious colleges. We seek to take these benefits, either that we've worked for or have been given to us, and use them for our own benefit or our own status, to try to elevate ourselves a little bit more. I think this is a natural part of being human. Again, doesn't mean it's the right way to live, but I think it's the way that we naturally are called to. Not called to, excuse me. The way we naturally gravitate to, the path of least resistance. And so for me, the million-dollar question is, how do we restrain that impulse for the good of the community? How do we do it? How do we find ways to restrain our privilege with joy, right? This is not supposed to be begrudgingly. That's what Philippians is about. With joy in order to serve both God and to serve our communities. This example that we see in Jesus is so antithetical to us because naturally we have this drive to dominate. From the Renaissance, doctrine of discovery, you should look that up fascinating about how it set the stage for so much of mine, to the plundering of resources of the earth in non-sustainable ways, to the ways we exploit our fellow human beings, you know, to the zero-sum, tight-fisted approach that we have to power in our culture wars, where we fight with tooth and nail to keep others from gaining any kind of an advantage over us. Friends, that is not the way of Jesus. I think in many ways the church is not immune to this trend. We imagine what it would be like if we could hoard our privilege for ourselves. But we don't use those terms. We don't think about it that way. Instead, we say things like, if we could only increase our budget, if we could only get our type of Christians elected in Washington, you know, if we could only, you know, like Elevation Church or, or Hillsong, if we could only get Justin Bieber to sing on our stage of our church, then, man, then we could really do something for the gospel. As if it's influencers that build the church and not God. As I read the scriptures, which would you say is truer of the way in which God works? Does God work through power and prestige, or does he work through suffering and weakness and humility? Time and time again, it's the latter. The way of Jesus is not one that is divorced from privilege. We saw Jesus had privilege, but one in which that privilege is held loosely. It's not to be used merely for our own benefit, but for the care of others. 
man, there's so much more I think that could be said about that. And maybe that's, maybe that's a further conversation we can have of exploring that and exploring what that is. And I mean, I've got a lot to say about the concept of white privilege that probably will upset everybody in the room. Um, I think there are things that we can, we can explore in, that, in the theoretical. But I want to I use my final few minutes to, to bring this kind of home practically to us. What does that look like practically? Let me pull up my slides here because I got some slides if you want to write them down. You don't have to. I want to I share with you seven practices for eradicating selfish ambition. And th- these were generated by the great Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 1940s. Uh, he pushed back against the rise of Nazism. He participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. It failed. He was executed as a result for it. And he wrote a book um, called Life Together. And in it, he shares some practical wisdom for how do we pursue this unity? What must, what must we check at the door to have this love and affection, this soulmate attitude, if you will? And so here are seven, seven things. I'll try to be quick through them. First is this. Hold your tongues. Refuse to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. And man, that is tough because, I mean, all of this take with a grain of salt. Because, you know, there was, uh, whatever her name was, what's her name? Debbie Tompkins, right? I said something uncharitably about Debbie Tompkins, but I think she, w- she needed to be called out. Like, I didn't speak to her directly. Anyway, you know where I'm going with this, right? There are times we need to call out our brothers and sisters, and I think there's ways we can do that respectfully, and there's ways that is very disrespectful to do so. So, it's not saying never say anything negative about someone, but be charitable in the ways in which you speak um, of them and to them. Second is this, cultivate the humility that we see in Paul, that you are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace, right? There's not much more that can take the edge off of our pride than being brutally honest with how far we stray from God's standard of perfection. We are part of this community, not because of how awesome we are and how lucky they are to have us, but how awesome, because of how awesome and gracious God is. Now, granted, we are very lucky to have all of you here, but it's because of God's grace that we need to recognize. Third, listen long and patiently so you will understand the needs of your fellow Christian. I'm convinced that this is one of the issues that we have in our modern context, that we do not listen well to one another. I mean, really listen. I mean, think about this. When you, last time when you were in a disagreement, you were verbally having a conversation with someone, and they were sharing to you the perspective that they had which you disagreed with, you were probably already figuring out, here's what my rebuttal is going to be while they were speaking. All right, I'm, I'm earmarking. All right, I need to speak against point A, point B, point C. In that instance, you're not really fully listening to what they have to say. You're, you're formulating, all right, how am I going to, to rebut this? And so I, I, I think it's important to, to listen. And so in, in disagreement, like wait for them to finish talking, even if maybe you got to take 30 seconds. All right, I want to I be present. I want to hear what you said. Once you're done, now I'm going to think about, all right, how would I respond to that? So there you go. Listen, listen well. Fourth, refuse to consider your time and calling so valuable that you cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or many. I know I struggle with this one. Um, I am very inflexible with my time. Um, you know, how can we serve others if we're overinflating the worth of our time? And I, I f- 
anytime I read the Gospels, I'm convicted of this with Jesus because this is how Jesus lived his life. How often he was willing to be interrupted even by those that the rest of society would have said weren't worth his time. Five, bear the burden of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Right? Holding up that they, they have been called to freedom in Christ. And so protecting that freedom, but also recognizing with that freedom, they are going to wound. Not on purpose, hopefully. And so what does it mean to forgive that that error, that slight on us, but also continuing to preserve that freedom that they have in the gospel. Sixth is this, declare God's word to the fellow believers when they need to hear it. I think that one's probably pretty self-explanatory. Seventh, sorry if you didn't write that down, understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs that service. Um, Jim Collins, I think it's Jim Collins is his name, he wrote a book called Good to Great a number of decades ago, and he kind of tracked like these 20 companies that made it through uh, for, for decades, like never underperformed. Um, and so it's like a business book. But one of them, he talks about leadership, and he differentiates what he calls level four leadership from level five leadership. And level four leadership was, are those who are those real charismatic, sometimes narcissistic people that are like, this is all about me in leadership. I'm the reason this company's doing so great. Whereas he says, actually, a better model of leadership is level five, where when, when you are, um, it's kind of the mirror in the window, right? When success happens, you look out the window. You point to your employees and being like, man, they are phenomenal. And when problems come, you internalize it and say, not internalize, but you look inward, that mirror of how can I be better? How can I lead this company better? Whereas level four is like, everything great is by me, it's that mirror and Every failure we have is, uh, I'm going to pin it on this employee this time. But anyway, so anyway, I think that shows this model, that servant leadership that we see in the Gospels. It's not about calling attention to ourselves. Um, all right, let's, uh, I'll just, let me just give you the questions real quick. I'm not going to expound on them. I'll post them on Facebook. Um, I won't say anything with them. So the first is this, what is the relationship between remaining faithful and steadfast against the outside persecution and pursuing that unity inside of the church like we saw at the beginning of the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two. Second is this, recount a time. Think about a time when you were able to use your privilege as an opportunity to serve someone else. And lastly, pick one or two or three or all of them of those seven practices from Bonhoeffer and find a way to focus it this week. Let me pray. We'll have Sarah come on up and then we can close out our service. Lord, as we conclude our our time here, um, may these words that we find in Paul's writing to the Philippians continue to uh, go with us, that uh, Jesus, we are so blessed by the way in which you lived your life, that you did not use your privilege, you did not use your status um, to your own advantage to to be exploited, but that you gave it uh, for our benefit. May we continue to find ways to model that to to those who are in our church community, but also to those who are outside, um, those who are far from us. Because Lord knows, you you saved us when we were far from you. Uh, You did not wait for us to get cleaned up, but that while we were still sinners, you died for us, demonstrating your love. And so God, may that be the attitude that we have. 
something that we probably can't do on our own, and so we just pray and ask for an extra measure of the Holy Spirit to provide that conviction, to provide that motivation for us to live in such a way. We, we ask all this in, in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.